This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift. Find your fun with the indoor cycling app where fun is fast. Closer. That's a bit Welsh for you. There looks to be a lot of sunshine shining into the room you're in. As it is currently smashing down in the UK, this leads me to think that you are somewhere nice and warm. <laughs> yeah, currently in um, Port Alcudia in Mallorca on training camp. We come here every December. So uh, I, th- I actually think I've been here at least once every year since 2004. It's quite a lot of time I've spent here. But I like it. Yeah, it's good. It's a nice place to start. You know, some nice... The roads are fast. They're all smooth. And, you know, in the UK, they're just heavy grippy roads here they're just nice fast and smooth we have race wheels as well which i'm not too comfortable with i prefer to have big heavy training wheels to be honest when you're training but (laughs) yeah race wheels in and yeah fly around here so yeah it's lovely and as you say sun shining can't complain You've been to Mallorca so many times that I like to think that when you go through passport control at Palmer International Airport, that they just greet you with a cheery, welcome back, Mr. Thomas. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah, they do. Everywhere I go, to be honest, Tom, it's like, hello, Mr. (laughs) Thomas. Well, I don't know where that was. don't know where that was, but... No, um, the receptionist knows me. He's been here a while. Apart from that, though, not really, mate. Could be anyone. Are you the last man standing? You probably are, aren't you? Now Stanard's retired. Are you the the longest standing... uh, member of sky slash ineos to still be going back to mallorca i am yeah yeah glutton for punishment really aren't i no yeah it's uh it is strange even staff wise though i think it's only dave b obviously and a bus driver randomly slarky and me (laughs) is this the first time that some members of the team have met each other trying to remember a story you told me once about michael nievi when he first joined sky and he was in the reception at the hotel and he introduced (laughs) himself to dave brailsford (laughs) <laughs> yeah he thought he was he the mechanic Dave was <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is a bit strange because I don't know it sounds weird but when you see most riders you just see them with a, in their kit and with a helmet and glasses on and you know what they look like so the first day here actually um, Ben Tullock came and sat next to me we had just arrived just had lunch and I was like oh mate how are you doing like I had a little chat and then in my head I was like I, I'm pretty sure this is Ben Tullock now but without him wearing Lycra and sat on a bike with a helmet and glasses on I can't be 100% sure I didn't want to gamble. And then one of the boys asked him about, oh, you did cyclocross or something. He was like, yeah, I won Junior Worlds twice. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, yeah, definitely him. So I was all right then. At the end of the camp, actually, the last night we have a Christmas party. So we have, we start, me and Luke came up with the idea like, oh, a good few years ago now. So the chefs, we have two of our team chefs here. They cook a big Christmas dinner. Everyone can wear Christmas jumpers or, you know, dress up even more if they want. And you have a bit of a, outfit competition and the worst normally has some sort of forfeit and then the winners normally get a bottle of wine and we have like a christmas quiz and stuff so that's pretty good and we do a bit of a rise initiation and things so that's a good way of bonding then because you know you can do you can go out on your bike and you can chat and be all polite and you know this and that when you're riding but let's be honest there's nothing better than bonding than just getting pissed together really so not too drunk obviously but you know it'll be the last night so That'd be good fun. Looking forward to that. It feels too, because Mallorca's played such a big part in your cycling education, your cycling career, that, you know, these tea towels you can get in holiday resorts and they'll have a map of the island and then they'll have little sort of pictures around the island of things that have happened. Yeah. feels that there could be something for the Mallorca Tourist Board just to do a Geraint-specific one. They could have a little flag on the Café in Solaire where you and Brad Wiggins <laughs> um, ran up a massive bill. They could have uh, Sacalobra where you used to train before which Olympics was it maybe 2012 and up and down that maybe the rooftop was there a rooftop in Palenza where you were doing turbo sessions Shane Sutton just stood over me just screaming at me basically hold the watts (laughs) hold the watts keep going so yeah there's definitely a few there's Mount Muro which is definitely not a mountain but um, it's where we were doing a team effort and then me and Ed ended up attacking them which I don't know why we did we were young you know young and stupid and just doing stupid stuff don't even know why we did it but it was towards the end of the camp i think and we were just yeah wanted to just try and drop everyone in a team effort which is a bit stupid really in it but um there's plenty of incidents there's been plenty of crashes as well not me now um well touch wood but yeah there's always been little slips and stuff because it's treacherous out here when it rains because those races in there in february january end of jan start of feb i've always avoided them 
luckily I've never had to do them yet. So fingers crossed I can get through the last few years of my career without doing them because, oh, they're horrendous. You wouldn't want to race out here in the rain. <laughs> Talking about crashes, how is the shoulder rehab going? Yeah, it's good, thanks. I reckon I could hail a taxi now, to be honest, Tom. And I could probably beat you in snooker now, yeah. Or pool. That's what you reckon. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But um, no, yeah, it's good. I had to do... So for the physios, they've got this new contraption, which you basically, oh, you have to push it and it just measures the force that you're pushing, you know? You have to do all these different angles with your legs in this measuring your, the strength in your pelvis and stuff. More for, well, to see if there's any weaknesses to improve. And then, you know, when it comes to, if you do have an accident, like you've got a baseline. And they also do ones with your arms and your shoulders and that. So I did this test and like, there was quite a big difference, like, about 60% difference between my right and my left. My right's my more dominant one, but that's obviously the one I broke, so it's a lot weaker. And then they put it on this graph, and then the, <laughs> the physio was like, oh, how'd you describe it? You know, like, it's more like a, a dartboard almost, and the centre is, like, really low force, and then the, the more, the further out you get is the bigger the force. And he showed me this, and he's like, oh, don't get disheartened now, but this is what a... Um, Teenage boy. <laughs> yeah, a 12-year-old. <laughs> This is what an AFL person's like sort of graph or picture would look like, you know, where the strength of it basically. And it's this big sort of like blob or whatever. He clicks on mine and it, ba- it didn't get out the first sort of um, little yeah, circle. Yeah, you couldn't even see a pattern. It was just a little dot. <laughs> but um, the strength is terrible, but the the range is good and we're working on it all the time. But it's just like, oh, yeah, it just takes quite a lot of work and it just takes so much more out of your day. Because obviously you're training like 30 odd hours a week and then you've got to do all this rehab of at least sort of an hour every day. And yeah, it just takes away from that mental rest really of just switching off and doing something else, chatting to you or watching Netflix, you know. <laughs> Should we get a guest on? Let's do it. Tom, good news. The sponsors are back for season two. That is momentous, G. And Momentus just so happens to be the sponsors of this next bit. But who are they? <laughs> well, for all you listeners that were listening last season, you'll remember them as Amp Human. Aha, yeah, a leading human performance company that works with over 150 pro and elite sporting teams. And once again, we've got an exclusive discount for you. Gee, what's the lowdown? Well, I use uh, PR lotion all the time. You basically rub it directly in your muscles, you get bicarb directly into them and... You know, allows me to maximise training sessions and improves recovery time. Yeah, if you try it, the clinical data says you'll get 53% less muscle soreness and be able to do 25% more training intervals. I like those odds, G. So if you fancy slapping it all over your legs before your next big ride or workout, go to livemomentous.com. So that first bit, all one word, L-I-V-E, then M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S. Dot com And because you listen to this podcast, we've got you an exclusive discount. Just use the code GTCC2021 at the checkout for 25% off Momentus's PR lotion. Happy training. Where are we, Lionel? We're in the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club, Richard. Very sorry to gate crash. Well, hang on a minute. I don't think you're allowed to say the word crash in oh. this podcast. They've banned it. Oh, well, you know what I mean. But why are we here, Lionel? Well, we're here to tell all the listeners and the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club members about the Cycling Podcast, which is hosted by us, three journalists. That's you, me, and television Daniel Freeb, plus our extended team of people, including Orla Shenoui, Lizzie Banks, and others. We cover professional cycling with a weekly show. We've also got a tech show and a monthly show devoted to women's cycling during the three grand tours we are on the ground doing a nightly podcast full of analysis insight the occasional bit of humor lots of stuff about where we are and what the food's like and also interviews with riders including if he will speak to us Geraint Thomas well hang on are you referring to the time that you insulted Geraint here Richard don't be fanciful Lionel well you said in the podcast during the 2018 Tour de France that he would not win the <laughs> anyway, Tour anyway anyway if you'd like to give the cycling podcast a go search for the cycling podcast in your favourite podcast app Right, Tom. So this season, I, we haven't had enough uh, Welsh guests on. So I've gone out and got us a blinking good one, to be fair. She's 
a TV presenter, adventurer, an ultramarathon runner, an author, author of the book Beyond Limits. She's competed in two of the toughest foot races on earth, the Jungle Ultramarathon and the 6633 Arctic Ultra. We'll explain what they involve in a bit, I'm sure. And I've read this as well. I didn't know this before, well, yesterday, but she's dived down to see the wreck of the Titanic as well. Welcome to the GTCC, Lowry Morgan. Thank you very much, Diochen Bauer. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming, Kroiso. I, I, well, Tom, I don't really know where to start, Like, but I guess the first question that automatically jumps out is, were you always a bit bonkers like this? Like, how would you go from doing, like, say, a park run, 5K, to <laughs> everything that we that I just mentioned then? Uh, my, my parents would say that I was always bonkers as a, as a toddler, you know, that I went from crawling to running straight away. And, um, yeah, I was brought up on uh, Gower, so they, I was always kind of adventuring and things like that. But I think, I think the light bulb moment was um, I was a competitive uh, runner when I was uh, in school, so I was quite lucky to re- represent Welsh schools and British schools um, on the track and cross-country. And then I went into uh, rugby, played rugby, very fortunate to have represented my country. And then I had a, quite a serious uh, knee operation and uh, they told me I wouldn't be able to run again. And I, and I remember being in the hospital, just really grumpy and just thinking, oh, that's it. You know, I'm going to prove to the doctors that they're wrong and, you know, I will walk again. So I remember leaving the hospital in a wheelchair and, and just learning to walk and learning to run again, just from one lamppost to another and back. And then I, I think I just realized for me then the speed had gone, but the determination was still there. So it was all about being a better version of myself in a way, if that makes sense. So I think that's where the distance running came in. I, I decided, right, I'll do a marathon and it's not about competing against the clock. It's about competing against me. And I think that's, it's just been a development from there. So how old were you then when you had that big injury? Uh, I was uh, 18. March the 3rd, oh, wow. uh, I remember the day. And I've been really fortunate that I've, I've put some mileage into these knees uh, over the years. Yeah, I, I think over the last few years, I've been training 4,000 miles a year, something like that, running, four, 5,000, wow. yeah, something like that. What does, just break that down so I'm terrible at maths, Larry. What's that, a week? It all depends. Mostly it's about 100, 100 miles a week. All depends on the race that I'm training for. Basically, I, I did the Dragon's Back race, uh, in, which is in Wales, one of the toughest mountain races in, uh, in the world, about two years ago. And that is 250 miles nonstop in, in five days with um, nearly 20,000 metres of climbing. So with that training, my mileage went down to about 60, 80 miles a week, but the vert was really high. To put that into context then... If you if you're an elite marathon runner and you're training for the marathon, you might do well. Let's say Paula Radcliffe at her peak, she might be doing 110, 120 mile weeks. So you're doing. I mean, that's a remarkable. Quite apart from the races that you end up doing, that is a remarkable training schedule to be able to get through, survive, and flourish. Yeah, well, with 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 the training, especially the ultra running, when I started back in 2008, you know, there, there weren't many ultra races around, so. Uh, you know, I, I kind of went to different people to kind of take advice. So I trained a lot with um, SAS soldiers and Royal Marines. I trained with marathon runners, ultra runners. I went and talked to scientists and I tried to just take a little bit of everything and mold it into the training that I needed. So I would train, for example, when I went to the Arctic, I would go up and down Snowden three, four times nonstop, just, just for the mental torture, basically, because I could easily, well, I did once I went in and sat in the car after the second uh, climb and it was pouring down with rain and, and I did it for a documentary. So you can hear the rain just like hitting the car and I'm sitting there sit, eating a sandwich, feeling very sorry for myself. And then I just kind of go, right, I can either turn the ignition on and, and just drive out of this car park or I'll just go up for the third time. And, and I did. And I think little things like that, you can only train your body to a certain point. I believe and then your mind is is just such a powerful thing as I'm sure Geraint you know exactly what I mean you know I I, I think I can tell you in some races where I'm convinced the body's given up and the mind has taken over and you know I don't feel the pain anymore and it's it's all about putting one foot in front of another. Just talking just going back to that the the motivation and the mental side of things like you know, what what drives you to do that like for instance now it obviously 
living in Wales, the weather's not exactly the best in November, December. Well, every month really, apart from September. And you're doing hundred odd miles a week. <laughs> How, where's that determination come from to do that? Because I like, know disrespect, but it's like not many people have heard about what you've done and they should do. But it's just like, at least when I, if I win a race, like if I win the tour, suddenly, you know, everyone knows about it. Not that you do it for the adulation and stuff, but it's just, yeah, you're just suffering in silence almost, you know, it's like. Yeah, you're right. It's it's not about, you know, you never finish a race in, in a stadium full of people as you would do in the Olympics, uh, uh, even, you know, London Marathon crowds and nothing compared to, to the couple of fans you'll have alongside uh, an ultra marathon. Um, there are some, of course, the UTMB, which draws a, lot, a massive crowd, but, you know, the money's not the same. So you, when you're really struggling in a race, you have to remind yourself why you're doing it when you really want to give up. And that's all you want to do is be back home on the sofa. You know, for example, I get up at half past four in the morning to try and fit like two, three hour runs in before breakfast. And I have to tell myself it's it's all about discipline at the end of the day. You know, it's what do you want now and what do you want the most like this morning, that's all I wanted to do was stay in my warm bed and, and just keep sleeping on. But the thought that I want to um, succeed in my next challenge was enough to kind of think, right, just jump out of bed and just get it done. And then I and I never regret a, a workout. But yeah, you, you, you're right, Geraint. It's about what I've got to remind myself why I do it. And I think it's down to passion at the end of the day. Um, I do it for lots of different reasons. Um, and I, I love that feeling where you get to the right to the bottom of, of your tank and there's nothing left there and you still find a way to keep moving and nobody's telling you to keep moving on and nobody's telling you to stop either it's all about you it's about how far you think that you can push yourself to become the person you believe that you can be and I think when yeah. when you reach that level you know it's just an amazing feeling when you do cross the finish line and you look back and you think gosh I never thought I could do that and yet here I am I've just run 350 miles non-stop or whatever <laughs> absolutely bonkers but that, that's another thing I was going to say like the, the team around you like again for me you know I got a whole team there well I've got teammates for a start on the road with me but then I've got you know my coach who you know, I have to upload my training. He, he tells, well, we have a discussion about what we're going to do, but we buy into it together. Got physios, got massage people, got mechanics. Like, you know, you got the big boss, Dave B. You've got like hundreds of people around me, basically. And like, obviously I do it for myself and I want to do well, but when I know I've got all the support as well, that, that helps. So for you, like, it's just on your tod more or less, no? Like you had to go out and get the advice off all these different people. And that's impressive on itself. Yeah, you, you you do have a team with you, of course, uh, before you start the race. You've got your coach and you've got your physios and, and people like that. But ultimately, when you're out on that trail, you, you are there on your own. You you can get, uh, in some races, you can get paces, you can get um, a support team. So that's when teamwork comes into play. Uh, there, there, there was one race that I did do, the Three Peaks Yacht Race, and we were a group, group of uh, five uh, female athletes. And we had to sail from um, South Wales up to Carnarvon. And then we had to run 20 miles up to Snowdon and back and then up to Whitehaven. And we had to self-navigate as well. And we had to go up to Scaffold Pike and then up to Fort William for the last leg of um, Ben Nevis, of course. And uh, I was really nervous about doing this race because I was in a team. And uh, so used to being on my own. So, you know, when I'm pacing myself, it's all about my pace. I know when to go fast. I know when to go slow. Uh, not always, but I like to think that I, that I do know my pace quite well. But there, you know, I was completely dependent on on another four athletes. And uh, yeah, we no female crew had ever completed the race before. So we, it was filmed for Channel 4. And uh, we had a couple of people come on and say, oh, just do your best. We'll just be really glad to see these, you know, female athletes doing really well. Uh, and we ended up winning the race. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was. And, and we only met the day before. But I think it was it was such a great experience for me being in a team and and getting that feeling of how camaraderie from your teammates can help and just teamwork and and it was all about communication and and I think it was one of the best races that I've run as a runner because I think when you've got that um 
support and companionship. And, you know, we were on this tiny boat for like five, six days and we were only sleeping about 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off. You, you know, the psychology is so important in, in, in a group, isn't it? And um, we just got that right. We just had the same same goals. Talking about teamwork, do you remember um, the deal we made in the Conway in a pub in Poncana when I bumped into you and Ken Owens and a few other guys? Yes, of course. I've, I've never forgotten. We'd had a few drinks, so I was a bit fuzzy about exactly what we had shake, shaken on. But was it not? Was it cycling across the Sahara or something? Because it had never been done. Yeah, that's it. We were going to do that. Yeah. Well, we are going to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when, when. Like it. <laughs> when I, I need to get slightly faster though. <laughs> well, the only thing is, I remember a couple of weeks later though, my brother sent me this tweet and some about some guy that had just ridden the Sahara. I was like, no way. He couldn't have. Just taken our record before <laughs> no, we we'll, we'll find We'll find a world first uh, somehow by uh, doing that challenge. Yeah. So what about when it comes to, so these ultra marathons, like um, the Amazon one, for instance, I'm guessing it was hot, humid. It's in Brazil, right? It was in Brazil, yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you prepare for that in, in, in Wales? <laughs> oh, people must think that I am bonkers. So... So I was started off training for this race and it was for, for a documentary on S4C called uh, Rasner Benamse, Race Against Time. So here I was, you know, running about 40 miles a week and then slowly in, increasing the mileage every week. And by the end, I was doing about 100 miles a week with um, 10 kilos of sugar bags in my, in my rucksack up and down Swansea. I was, bit, you know, living in Swansea at the time. So I was running up and down Swansea Bay with, um, sometimes I'd go with a, a bin bag as well and under my clothes just to try and get used to, to the, to the heat and the humidity. Um, but you know, you, you can't, can you, you just have to, um, I, I trained a lot with when, when I went out to the Amazon, I went out a few weeks, uh, I went a week, a few days rather, uh, before the race started, I went out with a Royal Marine and he, he was also an ultra runner, but also a, a, a paramedic. And he just threw me in the deep end. Basically, we, we spent the first day running first thing in the morning. And then by the third day, he just got me running out in midday heat, getting used to the, to the heat. And it seemed to work. I, I, I coped really well. Um, others didn't, unfortunately. Um, I know a few athletes ended up in comas. Um, people were taking too much salt. People were not taking enough salt. So you, you just got to know your body so well. And, you know, it's a fine, it's a fine line, isn't it, to be able to perform at that extreme level uh, and still be strong so 150 started the race and only 50 finished and I was doing my first ultra marathon and I finished 10th overall so um I was quite surprised and relieved obviously but um that's when sponsors started to to come to me then and, and say you know you've you've done quite well in your first ultra marathon would you like to be supported by us and so I was very fortunate then that that led on to the second series for S4C and the Arctic and then other documentaries have, have followed since then as well. So going back to the Amazon, 140 miles, that one? And that's just in one hit? It, no, we had, uh, it was a stage race. Um, so it was, we had seven days, uh, but six stages. So the longest was um, 100k uh, stage which we were given 48 hours to do I luckily did it in 20 hours so then that allowed me a day off on the sixth day but this this is the incredible thing you know like like the top runners were coming in you know 15 20 hours and then we had the extra day off but you were still seeing people just still just going for it and pushing their boundaries and just finishing the 100Ks within like 48 hours. Uh, it's just incredible to see it. That's one thing I quite like about ultra running is it's very humbling to see people of all levels. You, you've got your elite ones, but also you've got the ones um, in the back that are still going and they're still pushing boundaries and, and still achieving things that one would think absolutely crazy to even think of starting but but yeah it, it is really it's it's a privilege um to be a part of the sport and and I was quite lucky this year that I went back and reported on the Dragon's Back race so that's on still on BBC if anybody fancies um watching it and I think I don't know if you can agree with me on this but I think you you get to a certain point where 
your body screaming at you, like, stop, Lowry, this is what, what you're doing is crazy, is ridiculous, you know, you're in pain and just, you know, quit, quit now and just go home. And then there's something in the back of your mind that realizes that actually that's not what you want. And then you realize that you you get to the ultimate limit of endurance and you don't break, your limits don't break, they just bend and they drop a little bit maybe, but then you find another gear, a sixth gear, seventh gear, and eighth gear, and you kind of go, oh my goodness, you know, I, I, I found some more strength. And, and when I talk to my um, son, I keep telling him about the petrol tank that we have in the cars or, or whatever you drive. And, um, and you know, when you get to the red, it is, it's, means that it's empty, he keeps saying. I'm saying, well, it's not quite empty. There's always a little bit left in the tank to get you towards the finish. And, <laughs> oh, you're not and one I of them, always try you? to remember that. So I always leaves it on empty <laughs> yeah. and I go fill it up. <laughs> I, do you know what? I've been caught out a few times, actually. But uh... <laughs> How many miles do you give it, G, in that situation? Oh, I'm just I'm just someone who just like, if it's less than a quarter or so, and I pass a garage, I'm like, oh, I'll just top it up. You know, help everyone out in the family. So, No. She'll just drive home. It'll go into the red. <laughs> and you'll have the cat. You know, it gives a little countdown. I have been tempted once. So I did like go yeah. to zero just to see if I could keep going. And I did keep going. They got me to the garage anyway. Because I'm always like, they must give you a bit of a buffer. You know, when it says like 40 miles left, 10 miles left. It was on zero for, I don't know, it must have been a good. What's the buffer there? That's the question you see. I don't know. Yeah. See, once you once you go to zero and you keep going, you then think, well, what, what actually can I trust in this world? <laughs> yeah. Lowry, just before we go any further, as the non-Welsh person on this call, can you just describe to me, please, the Dragon's Back Race? Uh, the Dragon's Back Race is known as one of the toughest mountain races in the world, and it's based in Wales. So it starts in uh, Conwy Castle. And you've got six days, basically, to get from Conoy down to Cardiff Castle. And uh, you've got six stages. It's, it's not a one-stage uh, event. But yet you still have to climb over, well, nearly three times the height of Everest, basically. So nearly 24,000 metres. And every day is about 50 miles. Uh, you've got to self-navigate as well. So you get a map and you've got a recommended route, but you might be faster running on the road and, and avoiding a mountain rather than going up and down a mountain, just to kind of explain very quickly how, how you don't have to follow the recommended route. So what did you do? But do uh, you know what? I just go up the mountains. I, I'm, I'm a bit, um, I, I don't call myself a mountain runner, even though I love being there, I'm more of a trail runner. So when I get up to the mountains, I'm not the greatest at navigating and finding the trots, basically the, the little paths that the animals create and finding the best lines of running um, across the mountains. So what I do, I just try and find who is the best uh, mountain runner and I just try and follow them as much as I can, you know, um, and just uh, try and follow their lines of running. But it makes such a difference. And then you've got to find water along the way. You know, you do get uh, support stops um not, not many, one every day. And then you, you get a chance to wreck before to find where you can get natural water from the mountains and things. And this year there was like 700 started and only 80 finished. What's the hardest day, Lowry, of the dra- I'm just having a quick look at the route online. Yeah, well, that's it. It's, it's the dragon's back. So if you look at the, the, the it's like the, the spine of Wales uh, when you look at the mountain ranges that go from north to south. But the, the hardest day is they always say, and I don't know if this kind of works in, in cycling as well, but if you manage to survive the two, three first days of the race, then you're ultimately there because your body kind of goes into kind of an automatic pilot and you find your pace. You know, you're always going to see these people who like sprint off the first day going, you know, I'm going to break the record. And then, you know, you only see them a couple of miles down the road and, and you know, they, 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 they can't remember their names anymore. But it's, um, it's, it's, it's normally the third day is the one that breaks, breaks the back of the race. And you kind of tell yourself, right, okay, I've got just a little bit more to go now and I think I can do it. You can kind of start allowing yourself to dream about the finish line after the, the third day. So how about with the whole navigation thing? Is that the same in a lot of the races then? Do you have to do your own? Because I couldn't imagine, it's one thing in, in Wales, like, okay, you might end up oh somewhere horrible like England. But that's a joke, Tom, by the way. Don't be offended. <laughs> 
But <laughs> if, if, like in Brazil, like imagine going off track there and ending up like, well, Bolivia oh or somewhere. Oh my gosh. Like, just like I, the animals yeah, and stuff around. Well, I don't know what's even there, but. Well, in, in the Amazon, we had to swim across rivers full of piranhas. We had to go through uh, jungles full of jaguars and um, just snakes and just think of it. But there, there was a bit where this uh, long stage and, and it was the fifth day and I was with um, the front pack and I tripped over, uh, I don't know, there were so many obstacles on the floor, as you can imagine, in the forest and I tripped. And they said, oh, we'll, we'll wait for you. And I said, no, no, you just carry on. I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll catch you up later. And um, so I got up and by then you've lost them because you're in, in the thick of a forest. So I was on my own and then thinking, oh, I've overcooked it. You know, I've got my pacing completely wrong. I've, you know, damn me and just been really quite angry with myself because I was really struggling. And then I stepped on a hornet's nest Oh. And then I was chased by these hornets and I was screaming and, and of course nobody could hear me. So there was no point screaming. And then um, it was as if I'd walked over this invisible line and they all disappeared. So I must have gotten over the territory or something like that. So I started to count uh, the hornet bites. I had about 40. Some of them were stuck behind my rucksack and, and my back. But anyway, that's when I really struggled and I, I kept getting lost. I didn't want to sit down because I'm absolutely petrified of snakes. So then I was convinced now that I, ha- I was having an allergic reaction to the bites. So I, I didn't have a mirror. I hadn't washed for ages. No, no, no place for divas on these ultra marathons. So I was convinced now my tongue was swelling. So I was kind of going, oh, I've, 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 got, to, I've got to quit, you know. And I thought, right, do you know what? I've done a good job. It's my first ultramarathon. They're filming me. This is on camera. What I'll do, I'll get into the next checkpoint and I'll do a kind of dramatic fall in front of the camera. <laughs> I'll do like an Arnold Schwarzenegger style of, I'll be back. You know, don't worry, I'll be back. I'll come back for another chance. So I'd worked all this kind of scenario in the back of my head and I'd convinced myself, you know, some of the best sportsmen, sportswomen, entrepreneurs in the world have all failed on their route to success. You know, it's not final. It's the courage to continue that counts. So I'd convinced myself that it was okay to give up. And so I got to this, got there and I turned to this Royal Marine paramedic who was a, a friend of mine and I said, oh, my, my tongue is full on. I've got to give up. I couldn't even speak. Uh, and he opened my mouth and he looked at it and he said, no, carry on. And I was like, oh, um, and this was all in front of camera. And I was like, oh, oh OK, uh, I'll, I'll just carry on then. And my tongue, there was no swelling at all, but my brain had convinced my body to kind yeah. of give up. That was the low point but then I, I kind of, but, but then after that, I think my mother gave me a little quote uh, before going out. And it was like, um, it had on it, glory is not by never falling, but in the way we rise when we do fall. And that's when I remembered it. I hadn't thought about it until then. And um, I thought, oh, it's not about being as fast as possible. It's, it's about putting one foot in front of another. And if I'm doing that, I'm one foot closer to the finishing line. And it just, just made sense. And I'd lost all my toenails by now. And a lot of athletes had done that because our feet were like, um, like trench foot, basically, because they were wet and septic and blah, blah, blah. And um, so I, I thought, oh, my body can't take it. And then all of a sudden, I just found this like amazing well energy from somewhere deep within the soul that came and I'm convinced as I said earlier this is where the mind took over the body gave up I I had no pain in my feet Uh, I felt really refreshed and I was like yay let's go and I finished with a massive smile on my face Um, the the Arctic was different because we were just following the the ice road basically um I saw a wolf from a distance and it was one of those scenarios. Uh, I think if you've seen the film Fantastic Mr. Fox at the end. I was just thinking about that. Carnish Lopez. You know, at the, t- at the, the end. The yeah, fist. it was like that. It was like <laughs> he stopped. He looked at me. I looked at it. And, and then we just, it was like, all right, mate. <laughs> I just carried on. But um, that, that, was, that, that was more of all of hallucinations. That was that race, uh, the Arctic race, because that was one stage so I, I think I saw a lot more than I no, I think I didn't see as much as I'd seen in my head, if that makes sense. So what type uh, so of I, stuff so I, you, I, uh... that, that, <laughs> the, the Arctic race is known as the toughest, windiest and most extreme foot race on Earth. So it's 350 miles nonstop. 
and only five people had finished it when I went into the race. And this was the second series now for Race Against Time. And I had a lot of people taking the mick out of me, you know, where's your makeup artist and, you know, where's your wardrobe uh, person? And because I had a massive uh, pelk, like a sledge behind me as well. So I started the race and I got to the first checkpoint and it was 24 hours in. And I could see the first, uh, I was six at this time, and I could see the front five runners just in their bivy bags, just really shuffling. It was like minus 72 degrees Celsius. We were in a um, in a valley. Uh, so the wind was about 70 mile per hour winds and it was about 40, uh, minus 40 degrees Celsius. And then I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm, I'm not going to benefit from any sleep here. It's, it's just too, it's too, it's too horrendous, really. So I thought, right, okay, then let's just carry on. And that's what I did for 46 hours, just carried on, just head down and just just got on with the job. 46 hours, just going. Just going, yeah. And um, of course, if you want to stop in that weather, you've got to stop for everything. You you need to eat, change your clothes, go to the toilet, whatever, but you just do it in a matter of minutes or whatever. And um, I had trained with... um, special forces in Norway and they had completely broken me a few months earlier they said mentally you're, you're strong Lowry physically you're, you're fit you can do this but you, you can't survive in this weather you, you just don't know so they basically taught me to uh, repair the wheel of my uh, sledge um, over and over and over again blindfolded so I had to do it over and over again and they kept puncturing it then I had to put the kettle together, the small camping kettle together, blindfolded over and over and over again with three pairs of mittens on, you know, frozen frozen fingers. So they were saying, so when you are like sleep deprived, when you're hungry and you're freezing and you just want to go home and you're, you're not in a good place, you know that you can make yourself a hot drink in like 30 seconds or something. Or oh, it was 90 seconds, actually. I timed it. And um, I knew I wouldn't be the fastest, nor the strongest, nor the most experienced athlete on that start line. But I knew I could be the best prepared athlete. And I think that's why I, I won that race. Um, I think because I had prepared so well for that race, I, I could c- cope with the um, the down uh, points when they did uh, hit me, literally. So how many people finished that then compared to starting? I, yeah, I was people. I was the only one who finished. Yeah, but, I was yeah. the only one who finished. Everybody else had dropped out. I, I think there was, I got to halfway point, which was still 180 miles, with another Welsh guy, actually. There's just two of us left. And he started saying, I can't believe it's just the two of us. When I cross that finish line, I'm going to jump with joy and I'm going to do this. And, and I started to cry. <laughs> and um I said, I can't think of the finish line because it's still 180 miles away. And so I just pulled my hat down and I just looked at my feet for like hours because there's one stretch uh, between one checkpoint and another, which was 100 mile, um, just straight line. And because of the lack of light pollution out there, you know, you can see the next village from 100 miles away. So when I was going in the dark, you know, that's all I could see was this mushroom effect of light off this this village and I saw cartoon characters and the camera crew saw me and I said oh I'm not in a good place I'm seeing a a cartoon characters and they were going oh that's good Laurie that's good you know entertaining I said oh not these ones you know they had machete knives and everything (laughs) (laughs) but then towards the end I was in a good place is really weird because I think I, I worked with a sports psychologist and I had a bit of a little bit of a breakdown before going to the Arctic uh, because I thought I I couldn't do it and I just lost all faith and confidence in myself and um, so I went to chat to him good friend of mine now and um, he said look Laura you've run 100 mile races before why don't you just break this race into 300 mile races with a 50 mile race at the end and and that's what I did and it, it sounds crazy doesn't it and it's all relative but at that time it worked and um when I got to the last 50, I was in a good place because uh, I knew this is my sprint back home. And I'd slept about 12 hours that week. So I was still hallucinating. I pulled a toenail off as well because that, that was bugging me. And, um, <laughs> and then I, oh. um, I, I said, oh, I, I was one piece of equipment that I had not taken with me was a folding chair. Because I, I thought I'd be able to just, if I needed to sit, I'd sit on the floor. And, and I had a polystyrene uh, mat for that. 
But I realised that if I sat on the floor, I wouldn't get it back up again. So I, I was really annoyed with myself that I hadn't taken a little folding high chair with me. So um, I told that one of the support guys this. And then lo and behold, I saw a park bench on, on the ice road. And I was like, oh, thank goodness, they've listened to me moaning. And they put an, <laughs> a, a park bench on, on the road, so on the, on the ice. So I went and sat on this park bench but it wasn't it was just all in my mind so that was another uh hallucination but um yeah it it, it the the arctic stripped my soul bare i don't think i've ever hallucinated like i just can't imagine that that feeling of being that like sleep deprived plus just knackered physically toenails just falling off yeah that's just insane but also kind of it sounds pretty cool though Garen, i thought um before we did this episode of the pod that though you'd be finding loads of similarities between what you do and what Lowry's done but now I'm not so sure <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely no similarities in the actual events but when it comes to just that that deep down that drive and that dedication and stuff to what you're actually doing and that passion then yeah there is but <laughs> I have teammates that just give me a bottle whenever I want one like it's slightly different like that's the other thing with with nutrition and stuff you basically have to take all the stuff with you then yeah yeah so for example with uh, not not all ultra marathons again um some you get really good uh checkpoints with, with like there's a party going on and like you you can eat there and enjoy and stay there for too long sometimes but um a, a lot of the, the, the races that i really enjoy are the self-sufficient ones basically for example, in the Amazon, I had done some research to sweets. So I kind of wanted to find out which ones melted in, in the heat. So uh, I found out Haribo's are really good. And then the, the, the this is funny. Well, it's funny for me. Maybe you might not find it funny. But my parents had gone on a cruise to um, to the Arctic Circle just before I went to the Arctic. And they got chatting to a, um, a local soldier who had, and I was struggling, I do struggle, I still struggle with nutrition and I'd love to have a nutritionist to kind of sort, sort that out because I do struggle and I think a lot of ultra runners do uh, with, with stomach issues. I don't know about on the bike, but with the running, of course, you, your stomach is always, you know, moving around and do you take gels or, or fresh food and it's trying to find the balance between those and also you need to keep the food light because you need to carry it as well so it's, it's a it's a real tricky thing in, in in my world anyway but with the um arctic um i did i wanted to take some meat with me my parents had met this local soldier who said oh we we, we just eat um, dried fish you know that that's what we do so my parents had bought this ma- massive fillet of dried cod back with them from from um, Norway so we decided now my dad and I cut them it up to eight eight um, portions eight days and knocked it up made it into like a flake and and so then when I would want the, the fish I would basically pour the flakes into my hand and I'd eat it like that basically but what I didn't factor in was 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 the wind so every time I went to get the fish <laughs> and because my face was full of uh, Vaseline because of the wind and protection thing I would I didn't realize it at the time so I was eating this fish and for like hours I'd be walking along going oh I could smell fish and every time I looked <laughs> around me I just this horrendous smell of fish would follow me and it was only until like maybe the day after that this uh, support crew would see me and my face was covered with fish flakes basically <laughs> so uh, you can imagine what my uh, nickname was for that that week <laughs> um with that could, do you have to take the food for the whole event with you from the start though or can you like support crew take the majority to the next sort of pit stop or whatever checkpoint or you carry it everything for the whole race all the way yeah, again, it's, it's, it differs from race to race. Uh, for example, with the Dragon's Back race, you take the food for that day and then the support team move your food and everybody else's kit to, to the next stage. With the Arctic and the Amazon and uh, a lot of the races that I do, um, you, you carry your whole food for, for that week. But of course, the, the majority of the rucksack is taken up by food. But in the Amazon, I felt as if my rucksack was getting heavier when it should have been getting lighter because I was eating the food. Um, so I was convinced that somebody was putting stones into my rucksack. 
<laughs> it's just these these games the mind plays, you know. So I kept checking my bag to to see if I, somebody was playing a joke on me and putting stones in my rucksack. But um, it was just my body getting tired, basically. That that's all it was. So how about when it comes to filming you then? Like how do they how do they film you doing that? They just film you a bit, jump in their car with aircon, meet you somewhere else, or yeah, with with the um, Amazon they they couldn't get into the deepest part of the jungle. So what they would do, they would follow the support, the uh, checkpoints. So the checkpoints are always on an end of a dirt road or something like that. So they, they'd go as far as the car would take them. And then a cameraman would walk a mile maybe into the okay. into yeah. the jungle and another cameraman would walk the other way. So you'd get two shots uh, or three shots from, from quite a close um, area. Uh, and I had a really nice letter from uh, somebody after the Amazon saying we loved the series, but being a television program, I'm presuming you you didn't run it all. Um, and I was like, mm, right, okay. And I've always remembered that. So when I went to the Arctic, I made sure that the the camera crew only filmed me when when they could, and they filmed quite a lot of me to start off with during the first maybe three days and then they started to back off them because I didn't want either to finish the race thinking that I'd had extra help knowing that they were behind me um and psychologically and physically um but they were there as a support team for other other runners as well so there was a time when I was in my bivy bag and what I would do I would melt the ice and I'd use the water bottle as a hot water bottle so I was hugging it and because I was tired I hadn't closed the top properly, so oh. the water just spilled everywhere. And I could feel it, kind of the water just freezing on my feet. And like, you just could see it. Well, you couldn't see it. it was dark, but you could feel it. And I was starting to panic. And then the camera crew uh, were not that far away, so they came up and they could see head torch. Obviously, something was happening because I was jumping around trying to, to, you know, find everything. And they said, jump in, you know, jump in. Everybody else has been doing it. You know, just get warm for 10 minutes. I was like, no, no way. I'm not accepting any help uh, because me, I want to know that I've done it without help. Slightly awkward one for the camera crew, that Garen, isn't it? Because they're going to need to eat and drink as well. And you can imagine someone... Just before they've met Larry's do a bit of filming thing, a bit peckish. And they rip open a big sandwich and nice hot chocolate. And then they started scoffing it and they looked at Larry's face and just thought, uh-oh. Yeah, you can't do that in front of them, can you, at the ultra runners? Like, because that would be bad. But I think, like, you know when you are filming a documentary, though, I think that would, part of that would be my motivation as well. Like, Whoa, I've got to get to this checkpoint because they're there, they're filming. Like, I can't just, you know, I don't know. Do your family, do your husband or anyone come out with you or...? Is everyone back at home? My my parents are medics, so they tend to worry a lot when they see me. So um, every time they have come to a race, my dad always wants to take my pulse because I'm <laughs> the way I look. <laughs> um, um, so um, with these races abroad, they, they don't come with me, purely because I'm in the back of beyond, basically, and it, it wouldn't be fun for them, really. And and I sometimes think that they're better worrying at home than they are worrying on, on, on the course. There was one story in the Amazon, though. After the second day, um, my um, tracker hadn't worked. So two people had ended up going to hospital. So the, the end of day report was like two athletes had been taken to hospital. Um, and this is the these are the finishers of, of this day. And my name wasn't there. And my mother had read this and obviously put two and two together and made five. And she had found a flight, uh, a boat and a bus to where the race was being held uh, in in a matter of an hour or something. But luckily, my dad said, well, why don't we look at the end of day photos to see maybe we'd see Lowry. I wasn't in there except for a picture of my bloodied feet. <laughs> And my mother recognised my toes. <laughs> she said, "Those, those are Lowry's." She said, "Those are Lowry's feet." There we are. She's fine. We won't bother going out to the Amazon now. <laughs> I'm inspired, though. Like I've always thought, I want to. Well, I'm definitely going to do an Ironman when I retire from professional racing. But that Dragon Back race sounds pretty appealing at the moment, actually. I tell you what, Geraint, I will take you out on the mountains and I'll I'll train you up to do it because I I can assure you, I think you'll do really well. 
Oh, we'll do that. Yeah, hundred percent. That's that's it. after we've done the Sahara bike ride. Yes. we'll we'll, uh, we'll do the Dragon's Back race. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> do you know what I've been thinking about? As as you two amazing endurance athletes have been talking about what you do, I did a cross country race on Saturday as part of the Manchester area cross country league, which I do um, every winter, and um, I felt horrible during the whole race. It was quite hilly. And now I think I can never complain about it because <laughs> it took me 39 minutes and 32 seconds. Still did it though. <laughs> I waited to stop for most of that. Three laps and then the, the first lap, I was just thinking, right, don't think about the second lap. And then the second lap, I was thinking, well, it's going to hurt more than the third lap. So don't th- think about the third lap. And then halfway through the third lap, I knew there'd be a big sprint finish. So I was thinking, don't think about the sprint <laughs> finish. But all the above is irrelevant because it only lasted 39 minutes and well, How satisfying seconds. was it having so, done it though? Thinking like I could have quit so easily. It was amazingly there, but... satisfying. Yeah. And it, I always find, and again, I can't stress enough how low my level is compared to you two. But I always know there's going to be a sprint finish and all the way around. And you know how sick you're going to be at the end. You'll be puking your guts up and lying in the in the, in the the mud and able to move. I always try not to think about it because if I think about it, I tell myself, well, it doesn't matter. Don't do it. And then inevitably, when you come to the final 200 metres, you come around the bend and you're ready to go. You do it anyway. Like you can't stop yourself doing it. Yeah, it's like that in training. Like even when it's like, you're like, oh, yeah, it's not. It doesn't matter. Like this little like dress rehearsal race or not dress rehearsal but this little race you're doing like just to you know get a bit of more competitive edge and get a little bit out of yourself you're like oh it doesn't matter if I don't win this sprint I'm not a sprinter like racing Luke Rowe for instance who is so much more powerful and punchier than me for a sprint but I still like you still try and beat him though you still like might switch him a little bit you know try and box him in a bit or something he always beats me but every time you're always like yeah can't can't help ourselves can we well, thanks for coming on, Laurie. That was that was inspirational. I think I'm going to go for a 5k run now. But uh, in fact, I, you should have actually been, I think, nominated for Spotty, let alone well Wales and the British one, because some of those achievements, the only person, the hardest foot race in the world, only one to finish. A lot more people should know about you. But anyway, cheers. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. It's, it's do you know what? I'm, I'm chuffed to have been asked. Thanks ever so much. And it's been an absolute delight and an honour to, to talk to you both. Really, uh, real privilege. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you. Right, Tom. While you and producer Lou are slaving away on your turbos in the cold and wet British winter, I thought we'd chat to some more GTCC members on why they use Zwift and see if they can give you some tips. Have a listen to some advice from Chris. Hi, I'm Chris and I've been Zwifting since March 2019. I've been asked to tell you about a unique Zwift challenge called Everesting. This is pretty crazy. So the challenge is to cycle up the outer Zwift so you get the height of Everest, 8,848 metres. Now to put it in context, when G won his stage in 2018... It took him 41 minutes, 16 seconds. Now for the challenge, you've got to go up that lovely hill eight and a half times. That took me one hour and 14 minutes each ascent. Total time, 12 and a half hours. Fantastic challenge and all part of the world of Zwift. If you're feeling brave, why not give it a go? Superb. And if you fancy giving Zwift a try, just go to Zwift.com to start your free trial today. And don't forget to join our weekly GTCC group rides every Wednesday at 6pm. We'll see you there. Chairman Tom, I hear you've got some news. I've got great news, Garrett. We've got a new sponsor on board and it is Lacquer Insurance. The best bit is Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, just like our GTCC members listening to this. Lacquer's bicycle insurance is made for everyone, from Grand Tour winners like you, to riders hitting the pedals for the first time, like our club secretary Louise. Lacquer turned the existing insurance model on its head. Instead of projecting what costs it may need to cover and charging inflated prices, Lacquer only charges you based on the cost of actual claims that have been taken out that month. And your monthly price is capped too. Lacquer make money by receiving a small fee from every claim they settle. Meaning, for every settled claim, Lacquer gets paid. The more claims they settle, the more they earn. It's insurance geared towards helping cyclists get back in the saddle. 
And when it comes to making a claim, it's handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day with no depreciation and no excess. That all sounds great, Tom, but why don't we hear from someone firsthand? Let's welcome our very own honorary GTCC chairman, Mike Carr, to the pod to tell us about his experience with Lacquer. I signed up with Lacquer uh, a few months ago. My bike was insured on my contents, which was costing me a fortune. So I went with Lacquer, a really great model. And a couple of months later, my wonderful Carbon Canyon was stolen. They broke through my side gate and into my locked bike shed. Took the bike, which was soul-destroying, but I had a police report, police number, and a couple of photos, which I sent straight off to Lacquer. Literally three or four days later... Um, the money was in my bank account and I was off new bike shopping. So it was a great service. And the best bit of all, our GTCC members can get an exclusive Gary Thomas Cycling Club sweatshirt when they join Lacquer. Just head over to www.lacquer.co and sign up using the code GTCC. Enjoy. Right, Tom, it's time for any other business. What have you got for us this week? Gee, I'm very happy to say that we can announce our next lot of GTCC road captains. Starting with Hampshire, now we've got two bids in here. We've got Chris Gams and Paul Dyer. So, Chris, Paul, work it out between you who takes which bit of Hampshire. From Surrey, John Oliver. For Cambridgeshire, it's Neil Bowman. West Yorkshire, Dave Garner. And for Nevada, it says here, open brackets, Vegas. I don't know if that means that there could be some confusion with Nevada in Cheshire or Nevada in South Wales. It's Elliot King. Next up, Tom, I hear you've got some good news for our road captains. Yeah, road captains, you, me, anyone who is a member of the GTCCG, because, and do me a little drum roll, please. <laughs> They're getting worse. <laughs> they are getting worse. The drumroll G is to signify that the GTCC is now an official club. Can you do me a champagne cork pop? Pop. That's <laughs> even. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Anyway, uh, well, that's huge, Tom. What a day! It's. Uh, do you remember back when this all started? I know, just the two of us talking about a podcast. And now we're affiliated with British Cycling. We exist not only in your head and my head and in the strange world of pod life, but in actual real life. Quality, yeah. And people can just get out and take part because that's what matters, Tom. Getting out, taking part, enjoying riding their bikes. Yeah, not just winning. Absolutely not just winning, but taking part wherever you finish. It's all about starting. More news as well, G. Last Sunday, we had our first ever official GTCC group ride in person. So this was led by Andrew Parks, who is our road captain for Nottinghamshire. Get this. It started out from our only official GTCC cafe, Cafe Vela Verde, which is, of course, owned by our friends Vinny and Bill. So thank you to everyone who took part and enjoyed the social after. We hope there'll be plenty more in the new year. Remember, you can apply to be a road captain and spread the GTCC far and wide by filling in the form on our socials or join the GTCC Facebook group to find out more about socials, group rides and everything to do with the club. OK, next up, let's chat GTCC merch. So we've been having a bit of a competition on our socials to see how far we can get the hoodies, the T-shirts and the water bottles. Now, Fionn, our social producers, took hers all the way to the Scottish Highlands and Kitchen, who some of you may know from our weekly group rides, well, she's taken her hoodie to meet the Gruffalo recently. Any advance on these from you? Send us your pics on all our socials. And if you haven't got your merch yet, there is still time before Christmas. Just go to gtccstore.com. And finally, watch this space, as in the new year, we will have the GTCC cycling jersey back in stock with a brand new design. Geraint, you've been trying out the new BioRacer kit at the Ineos training camp. How is it feeling? Yeah, very good. Very good. It's, uh, it's d- definitely different to Castelli, but um, yeah, I think uh, it's exciting. New jersey coming out. I think it will fit, might fit you a bit better, this one, Tom. Great news. Just purely from all the work. It means for the more muscular rider. Exactly, yeah. All the work you've been doing on Zwift, that's what it is. You're going on about spreading the, the GTCC merch. I'll see what I can I can do there over Christmas with Max. Surely he can get his bottle somewhere. Nice. I don't know, Santa's Grotto or something is a bit different, isn't it? But 
we'll think of something. Definitely. I enjoyed the pictures um, that your team sent out with the new kit, one of which featured Ethan Hayter in the short-sleeved jersey, riding up what seemed to be, unless I'm mistaken, the Brickworks climb in Cheshire, which even in July tends to be a long-sleeved jersey part of the world. In December, the fact he's ridden up there in a short-sleeved new bit of kit says to me that he's one hard bastard. Yeah, it was photoshopped, mate. (laughs) (laughs) It was sunny as well. It definitely wouldn't have been the right weather there. 100% that's photoshopped. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) We will see you all next week for our final episode before a little Christmas break. See you then. That was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to Club Secretary Louise Gwilliam, Head of Music Emma Hickman, Head of Social Fionn Clark and our Honorary President Mike Carr. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. <laughs>